Well, as, uh, as we think about this idea of finding our way, uh, we come to a, a portion of the Gospel of John in chapter, t- uh, in chapter 10 where we get the opportunity to celebrate the light which is Christ. Uh, light is, uh, spiritual light is something that seems to be in short supply around the world. Uh, people are uh, always operating by their own opinions and by their own wit and by their own wisdom. Uh, religiously, people uh, feel as if they need to make sure that they protect their own opinions so that they can be justified in how they live. And then at times there's even uh, a movement uh, by uh, larger forces in the world uh, that ostensibly keeps people in darkness. Uh, Currently, our local uh, association of churches that we're a part of uh, had a, 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 big, a really large surplus of money over the course of, a, of the last few years because of a large donation that was made. And earlier this year, that money was given to uh, a gentleman who's a second-generation missionary in the Amazon jungle, uh, where he is able, uh, that he camps out basically for a living. Uh, he has uh, ev- evangelized a number of tribes that had been previously unreached. And and now, with the help of other tribes that are indigenous to the Amazon basin, they go out and they search through the Amazon jungles for other tribes that have never been touched by the modern world in order that they might be able to introduce the gospel to them. And they're actually uh, constantly hunted, not these tribesmen, but this American missionary and the other believers are constantly being chased by the Brazilian government because they don't want them to mess with the, with the sociology. They don't want them to mess with the culture of these tribes that are lost in the jungles. And this attitude uh, really boiled up to the surface this past week when the Christian missionary John Chow was killed trying to reach uh, an isolated tribe in India. Some of you may have seen this particular story. This young man uh, who looked to be probably in his late 20s had studied for a number of years. He had prepared for a number of years in order to make first contact with a, with a tribe in India that had lived in utter isolation. And he had made a couple of uh, kind of tertiary contacts with them, but then on arrival uh, on, in a single boat paddling to their island, uh, the tribesmen actually came out of the, out of the forest, out of the jungles, and they, and they slew him, and he died. And, and so then the news wires began to rev up, uh, basically unbelievers around the world, people that journalists or other uh, governmental officials saying that this guy did a terrible thing and, and we're sorry for the loss that his family's enduring, we're sorry that a young man's life has been cut down, but this was a dumb thing to do, this was a terrible thing to do, he had no business uh, you know, trying to import his Western values and to go and to make contact with this tribe that lived in isolation there in India on a small island, and really it's just his fault. And that's the attitude of the world, just kind of live and let live, you know, let people be as they are. It's interesting, here's the, the note uh, that John, this young man, wrote to his family uh, before he struck out to go try to make contact with this tribe in order to uh, bring the gospel to them. It's, it's short. He said, you guys might think I am crazy in all of this, but I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it. But I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to, whether he, to whatever He has called you to, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. 
This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God worshiping in their own language as Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 states. I love you all, and I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. Glory to God. And there are, even among the church, people who have decried that young John has done a foolish thing and lost his life over it. But this was what he felt called. He felt like there were a people that were in utter darkness, and they needed the light of Christ. And, and I don't know if anyone amongst us is going to be called to some third world condition, to some indigenous people that has been completely unreached, or if you're just going to be called across the street to a neighbor or down the hallway to a different cubicle to a coworker, or you're going to, be, you're going to sense a, a renewed calling in your life, maybe to a grandchild or a niece or a nephew or, or to a parent that doesn't know Jesus yet. But we need to have this kind of passion for people that are in darkness to see the light. That is a very Jesus kind of thing to do, is to want the light of Christ to burn very brightly in the world so that people that are in darkness will see Him for who He tr truly is. Here in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, I, I, I want to bring to conclusion uh, this chapter that, that we looked at the first half of it last week about Jesus being the good shepherd, how the Pharisees were mad that Jesus had helped a blind man to see so that he could display that he was the Messiah. Uh, these are the, the thieves and, and the robbers that they don't want the sheep to come into the sheepfold, that Christ where he is the good shepherd. And, and then the story continues on uh, after he has uh, been rejected by the religious elites, but he has been believed by kind of the everyman. And it says in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I did tell you, and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one." And again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. And Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Isn't it written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called those whom the word of God came to gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you're blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And then they were trying again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. So he departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there.
And many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Uh, Let me pray. Father, we ask that uh, where there is brokenness in our lives, that you would heal us. God, where there is sin, that you would forgive us. Lord, where there is the need for empowerment, that you would encourage us. Lord, teach us who Jesus is today so that we can follow him fully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In this passage, I would say that there are several lessons for us to learn. The first is this, and that is that Jesus is more interested in your salvation than you are. Now, that seems a bit impossible. I mean, who would be more interested in your eternal destiny than you? Jesus is. Jesus is way more interested in you being saved than you are, and the reason being is because we're so broken. It's because we we get so off kilter so incredibly quickly uh, that oftentimes we don't even recognize our own need for forgiveness or for salvation. Uh, You know, every once in a while, uh, somebody on a Sunday morning will uh, say something very kindly to me about uh, how the message was important to them, how I explained something out of the Bible that it was very necessary. Any of you that are Bible study teachers, maybe you lead a life group on a Sunday morning or somewhere in in your home, or you've taught a Bible study somewhere along the way in your life, you know this experience. And every once in a while, you're teaching something, and somebody and somebody out of the group will come and tell you, "Oh my goodness, I you know I needed that so badly." And, and it is a humbling experience because it always reminds me to rewind the tape to earlier in the week or earlier in the month when I was preparing, and this passage, you know, breaks our own heart as teachers. When I suddenly recognize, and I'm looking through this passage, and I see how committed Jesus is to the salvation of souls, but not just the salvation of souls in some kind of global generic sense, but to the salvation of my own soul. It's one of those things that absolutely just crushes me when I'm preparing to preach, because I I realize as, as dedicated as I think I am to Jesus, Jesus is so much more dedicated to me. As dedicated as I think I am to the cause of the mission of God, Jesus is so much more dedicated to me. As much as we think that we really want the church to grow and flourish and be a powerful force in the community, Jesus is even more committed to us. He is so committed is that in that we see him in this passage where it says at the very beginning that he's at the festival of dedication, that, and, it's, and it's winter, and he's walking around the temple complex there, and, and Solomon's colonnade is kind of the technical term. Many uh, people refer to it as Solomon's porch. And, and the people come, and they surround him, and they ask him, when are you really going to tell us? Are you going to keep holding us in suspense? You know, when are you going to really say it out loud? Now, where is Jesus, and what's going on at this festival of dedication? Well, quick history. In the year 167 B.C., this Syrian tyrant uh, named Antiochus Epiphanes uh, sweeps through with his army, and he conquers Jerusalem, and he sacks the temple. And he actually sets up a pagan uh, altar inside of the temple in Jerusalem. Well, a few years later, in 164, so just three years later, a, a Jewish leader by the name of Judas Maccabeus uh, then rallies the Jewish people in order to take the temple back from this Syrian interloper. And, and when they do, they then initiate an eight-day festival uh, that is called the Feast of Dedication. Uh, we know it today as Hanukkah. 
the Festival of Lights. The reason it's called the Festival of Lights is that during this eight days, uh, they would set up all of these candles, and, and in the temple, they would set up these massive burning oil-filled uh, lamps and candles everywhere, so that at night, uh, the temple, uh, as it sat up on the mount, uh, it, it would illuminate. Uh, it, it felt like all of Jerusalem. It was like this bright light in the sky. And this is what, where Jesus is at this moment when the people surround him and they say, just tell us who you really are. Stop holding us in defense. It is this irony that at the time that they would celebrate uh, the, the sacred nature of the place of worship and that they would celebrate the truth that Jesus uh, is there among them. Uh, that they would celebrate something that happened uh, 190 years earlier uh, of being able to re-sanctify the place where they worship, that the one for whom that they were waiting for is standing among them and they still can't recognize him. It, it showed that they, are, that they were trusting in the wrong thing. They were trusting in the practice of their worship rather than the God of their worship. Uh, we still do this sometimes in our own lives, uh, that we worship the practices of our religion rather than the God of our religion, that we, we put all of our hope in what it is that we can accomplish by our own human intuition and by our, our own willpower rather than the God who sweeps in with grace, who makes up all the difference in our lives because really we can accomplish nothing. It, it reveals that they were not saved, that they were not real believers, that they were not saved or safe, that they were lost and legalistic because they wanted something out of Jesus that, that He had already given to them time and time again, proofs that He was the Messiah, that He was the Savior. Now, what is it that is most important in your life and in my life? Is it the holding on to standards of moralities that we want everybody to live acceptable around us, or is it Point, pointing everyone to Jesus and His ability to save? Is it works or is it faith? Uh, is, it, uh, is it ability or is it grace? Uh, they were very much in this day and age circling up around Jesus. They were more concerned with their ability to prove themselves worthy to God. Uh, it's a works-based kind of salvation that even really good Baptists sometimes give into. Uh, sometimes that's what we lurch back into after our salvation. Uh, we believe we were saved by faith, but then we think that we have to keep ourselves in God's grace through the rest of our lives by being good boys and girls, that somehow if I'm not good enough, God's not going to love me anymore. Uh, and Jesus keeps pushing them to understand that it's all about faith. As a matter of fact, He says there in verse 26, but you don't believe because you are not my sheep. You see, true sheep are true believers. That's what it comes down to. Uh, true sheep of Jesus are the true believers. It, it is not, did you rest, dress right, act right, sing right, pray right, do right? Is it simply, did you believe? That's the, the simple acid test of a Christian life. Is there faith there? Uh, because if, it's, if, it, if the test reveals that there's only uh, behavior modification or memorization of the right uh, Bible passages and Sunday school lessons, that's not the test of whether or not you're a believer. The test of whether or not you're a sheep of the pasture of Jesus is do you believe? 
we need to test ourselves as to whether or not we have really been saved. So Jesus is more interested in your salvation than you are, which is why he goes to all these links. And if he goes to all these links, there's a second lesson out of this passage that I I think is worthy of us to take note of, and that is no one who is saved can become unsaved. Once you're in, you're in. Jesus is so concerned about your salvation that he ensures that it will never be taken away because it's his work. Now, if it was your work, then it could very easily be broken, taken away, dissipate, uh, completely melt. But if it's the work of Jesus that brings us into the kingdom of God, then who could possibly undo the work of Jesus? Uh, You might hear phrases like, once saved, always saved, or eternal security. Uh, These are the things that when we look from the beginning to the end of the Scripture and we see that God is a covenant-keeping God, we can be sure that once we're in, we're kept. Uh, Once we are brought into the family, once we are adopted, once we become joint heirs with Christ, once we are grafted in to the branch, once we are a part of what God is doing in the world, nothing can untie that or undo that. Look at the way he talks about us there in verses 27 and 28. He says, "'My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand.'" The sheep hear the Savior's voice. The sheep are known by the Savior. The sheep follow Jesus, and He gives us eternal life so that we cannot perish. We will never perish in that eternal condemnation kind of way. He gives us eternal life, and no one can take us away from Jesus. And then it says there in verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You are held in the double grip of God, held by Jesus, secured by the Father, and then the triple coating is then the Holy Spirit being indwelt among us seals our salvation forever. We are not saved by our temporary morality, but by God's eternal grasp. If you think for some reason that getting into salvation has to then be kept by your good works, then you're fooling yourself because I love you, but you're not good. None of us are. We're all bad. We're all really, really bad. We're all angry and bitter and jealous and hateful at times. We're all greedy at times. We all were gluttonous this week. That's who we are. And so if we think that somehow we're going to be saved by our temporary morality that is just here for a moment and gone the next, well, then we are people that have no hope whatsoever. But you and I are held by God's eternal grasp. As one great theologian said it, if you could lose your salvation, you would. It's, um, I I don't do this to be ugly, but I I do it to make a point at times. Whenever I have debated whether it's another theologian or whether it's a conversation that I have with someone who is uh, just kind of an everyday believer, and and they state to me, you know, well, I do believe that you can lose your salvation. My question to them always is, well, can you tell me the last, tell me about the last time you lost your salvation? What did you do about it? 
And never once have I ever had another Christian ever be able to tell me about when they did lose their salvation. Their answer is always, oh, well, I never have lost mine. Oh, well, that's very convenient. You know, that's a really <laughs> convenient position to hold. You know, all the rest of you, these mongrels out here, they're losing their salvation all over the place. They're a bunch of savages. So, it is this very precarious position that we put ourselves in if we think, well, I'm going to work my way into salvation and I'm going to hold on to my salvation by my good works. Well, instead, what about just trusting Jesus who absolutely cares about your salvation to the point that He is going to put you in His grip and the Father's going to put you in His grip, and the Holy Spirit is going to seal you up, so you have the triune, eternal God of the universe has got you sealed up in a covenant that even if you wanted to squirm out of it, you're His forever. Amen. One last thing that I'll point out to you about this passage is that uh, Jesus extends to us immense grace and shows tremendous patience with hard-hearted people. And I should have probably put a dot, 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 like me. Because we are. I am. You are. That's us. He shows immense grace, tremendous patience, not just with people that are easy. I mean, because you and I, that's what we do. Uh, we show grace and patience to people that are easy, to people that we know are going to come around, to people who, that we know are going to get it eventually, to people whose lives are not too messy, to people that, that we are like and that we do like. Whereas God, there's no one like Him. Everybody outside of His kingdom is an enemy, is a person operating in darkness, is part of the army that is trying to infiltrate His kingdom. Everybody else that is outside of His family is the enemy of the kingdom, and yet it is to all of us that He shows immense grace and tremendous patience to people that are hard-hearted and stiff-necked and petulant and churlish. In fact, he gives them an opportunity to believe in him, even in this passage. He says, believe in my teaching. Believe in the works of my testimony. Believe in what people have said about me. He gives them this opportunity to believe. Rather than storming off when they circle up around him or calling down the angels from heaven with blazing swords to cut down the crowd, he gives them one more opportunity. And as we march through the Gospel of John, what we see is he, he gives them constant opportunities. It happens in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Mark, in the Gospel of Luke. He's constantly giving hard-hearted people an opportunity to grow soft to the Gospel by His grace and by His patience. And He gives them an opportunity to believe in them, in Him by reminding them that, hey, have you not heard about me? Have you not seen the work that I've done? He even at one point in the passage arrests their attention with a reminder of our unjust nature. Now, th there's this little place that, is, uh, that uh, theologians and, and Bible scholars like to debate about there in verse 34, where he says, Jesus answered, isn't it written in your law, I said you are God's? And if he called those whom the Word of God came to God's, and the Scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are a blaspheming to the one who the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said, I am the Son of God. Now, in this place, Jesus is referring back, and he's quoting Psalm 82. And, and I, 
amongst all the debates, the place where I land is that in Psalm 82, uh, that Asaph, who's writing this psalm, is referring back to a time in Israel's history where they had judges that were very unjust. And the word that is translated gods uh, in Psalm 82 in the Hebrew language, and then also the place where it's translated here in the, in the Greek New Testament, it, the, that particular word in both languages does not refer only to the one true God. It, it also referred very often to people who simply held power and authority in culture, specifically in judicial culture. And so in Psalm 82, uh, the psalmist, uh, God through the psalmist, is calling on the carpet the unjust judges of Israel's past, reminding them, even the people who had political and judicial authority, to divine between what was right and wrong, to be able to say, you're a criminal and you're innocent and you're the one who goes to jail and you're the one who pays the fine, even the people that it was their job to know what was just and right, we're bad at it. And so he said, even if he says to these that they're like gods, like little g gods, then how can you possibly get mad at me if I've been displaying the works of God that I declare I am the Son of God? He arrests them. He takes this, this argument and he absolutely stops them in their tracks by reminding them that there is this great history of injustice among the people. And so how in the world can you be surprised when the one who actually can perform divine miracles shows up and says, but let me explain to you, I am the Son of God, which is really where it all lands. He declares his true identity, Son of God. They circled up. They wanted to know, stop keeping us in suspense, telling us who you really are, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly, they ask in verse 24. And he says there in verse 36, I am the Son of God. How can you be surprised when I tell you? I am the Son of God. How is this shocking to any of you? And it goes on through the rest of the passage that it says, Some reject, but many believe. Jesus asserts his authority and his identity so that people can believe. And that's what he simply wants from you. So I, I want to say it plainly to any of you that are here today that you suddenly kind of have figured it out in your life that you have been banking your whole eternity on being good. If, if someone were to ask you the question, uh, if you were to die and you stand before God as the judge of the universe and he was to question you about why you should be given entrance into heaven, if your answer is, because I've been good, well, uh, he would say, well, no, you haven't, <laughs> because none of us have been good. I mean, maybe you're better than the neighbor down the road who kicks his dog. You know, maybe you're, you're better than the, the criminal that you saw on the six o'clock news that committed some vile act, but that doesn't mean that any of us are good. Uh, the Bible's really clear that none of us are good, uh, that we're all wretched, we're all broken. We all miss the mark. And maybe you finally are recognizing that this Jesus is saying, you're all broken, but you are willing to see now that he gives you an opportunity to believe, that he, he shows you grace and patience. Now, for the rest of us as believers, maybe you're on the other side of the equation. 
You came to that point, you trusted in Christ, His goodness, His salvation. You believe that He's the Son of God, that He died in your place for your sins, went into the grave, bodily rose from the dead, showing that He has uh, victory over sin, death, hell, the grave, the whole lot, and that you've trusted Him. Maybe that was a year ago, maybe that was decades ago. But suddenly, things are kind of clicking in your mind that you haven't really been living by faith that He's the Son of God. You haven't been operating in that. You have kind of used the last months or years of your life kind of still in this kind of transactional relationship with Him. I got to make sure that I do really… I got to keep a lot of good stuff on my ledger so that God will like me. Uh, Let me just tell you, He likes you. Like, he likes you a lot. Like, you're, you're his child. You, you have been brought to his family dining table. He is waiting for the moment that you pass through the veil in order to enter into the eternal landscape of being in his personal presence forever. He loves you distinctly, and he loves you deeply. And you do not have to prove your worthiness to God. He has proven your worthiness by the death of Christ on the cross, which is why in a few moments we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. On this weekend of Thanksgiving, when we recognize all of the things for which we should be thankful for, it is the death of Christ. It is the sufficiency of Jesus. It is that Christ, as we sang earlier, is enough for me that He is always going to be enough. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to pray along with me that we would get our lives into, and our minds and our hearts into the right place of affection, because the Scripture does teach us that when we come to the Lord's Supper, that we should come in a manner worthy, which means that we have confessed our sin, that, that we're coming into this moment to celebrate that Jesus was willing to give His body and His blood on our behalf, uh, that, uh, that we don't come into this moment saying, well, I'm going to eat this cracker and I'm going to drink this grape juice and it's going to get me brownie points with God. I'm going to get, you know, get a little star by my name. But rather, this is this moment where once again we celebrate that this is what Jesus has done for us. We're not doing something extra for Jesus, that He is enough for everything that we're ever going to need. And I want to invite you this morning that if you're a Christian, that you participate with us in, uh, in the Lord's Supper. If you find yourself in a position where you're not a Christian, in just a moment as we pray, I'm going to invite you to become a Christian, uh, to trust Jesus for your salvation, to say to Him uh, that you're willing to repent of your sin, that you want to put your faith in the Son of God who loved you and who died for you. And if you are a Christian, that you once again declare that to Jesus, that, that you believe that He has been and always will be enough. So let's pray together. Father,